Uh, in the months after Beth and I got married, uh, not only did we spend hour after hour gazing deeply into each other's eyes, we also spent hour after hour gazing deeply at a whole lot of paperwork. And, and the reason for that paperwork was the fact that Beth wasn't from Australia. And so she was only here on a temporary visa. And so unless we did something about it, they were going to kick her out. And so to get her permanent residency, we had to fill out piles of paperwork. And a large portion of that paperwork was actually all about trying to prove that Beth and I actually had a genuine relationship, that we were truly committed to each other and staying together, that we weren't just trying to rot the system somehow, you know, so that Beth could get into the country somehow. Because you know all those Americans that are so desperately trying to defect <laughs> into Australia and get through our borders? Yeah. Anyway, this evidence that we had to provide is what the Immigration Department calls proof of genuine relationship. And so over a period of about three months, we filled in form after form after form, and we supplied them with our marriage licence. We, we had friends um, writing letters affirming that, yes, our, our relationship was genuine and true, and, and we showed them documents of show, uh, shared bills and shared bank accounts, and, and we supplied them with copies of emails that we had written to one another during our courting. It was very embarrassing. Some of them were very, very embarrassing. We provided them with photographs that we had had taken together at various occasions. And, and anyway, by the end of it all, thankfully, the Immigration Department was able to look at the evidence and they were satisfied that this relationship that we had was indeed genuine. And so, praise the Lord, they've now granted Beth her permanent residency. It's true, isn't it, that where there is a, a genuine relationship, uh, you expect to see some kind of evidence. Well, in our world today, there are many, many, many people that claim to have a relationship with God. And many of them are Christians. In fact, worldwide, there's something like two billion people that claim to be Christians. That's over a third of the people on the face of the planet. But as we'll see today, not everyone that claims to know God really does know God. That there is a difference between calling yourself a Christian and being a true Christian. And as we think about this this evening, we here tonight, we are going to be forced to ask ourselves a question. We're going to be forced to ask ourselves, are, are our lives showing the sort of evidence that you would expect to see in someone with a genuine relationship with God? Tonight we're going to continue on in our series in 1 John. In fact, if you don't already have a Bible open at 1 John chapter 2, can I encourage you to grab one now, open with me to 1 John chapter 2. You can find that on page 862 of the small print or 1899 of the large print Bibles. And we begin this, this evening by noting that there seems to be this uh, a particular pastoral situation going on there amongst the people to whom John is now writing this letter. Now, we don't know all the specific details of what's going on, but it seems that there are some people who are claiming to know God, but they don't really. And the reason that John knows this is the fact that these people are refusing to obey God's commands. Read with me from chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, 
I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So you see, according to John, that person that claims to know God, but then refuses to obey God, well, doesn't actually know God at all. They're just kidding themselves. Why is that? Why is that, do you think? Well, it's because the relationship that a Christian has with God is actually a love relationship. Okay, God loves us and we love him. That is the, the basis of our relationship. And so then to say that you know God, to say that you, you love him and to then point blank refuse to do what he says, well, that is a, it's a contradiction. It's not possible. And so in the end, that makes you a liar. You don't really know God. You don't really love him at all. On the other hand, when a Christian does obey God, what it does is it actually backs up their claim to know him and love him. It's proof of a genuine relationship. It confirms the reality of this love relationship and it shows that love to be real or complete. And so then, the true Christian, the person who truly loves God, will not refuse to obey God, but will rather strive to obey God. Just as Jesus loved his heavenly Father and, and so obeyed him, well, so now will we. That's what we will do. In other words, the true Christian will now walk as Jesus walked. Read with me from verse 5. Verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And so you see where there's a, a genuine relationship with God, there will be obedience. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read this particular part of, of the Bible and as I think about it and think about the implications, there's part of me that is left thinking, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, am I really a Christian? I mean, I know myself and I know that there are, are times when I am less than perfect, okay, a lot less than perfect. I know that there are times when I do disobey God. I, I know I'm a sinner. So maybe I should just pack up and go home now. Well, as we think about that, I think we also have to keep in mind what we heard John say last week in chapter 1. Do you remember what he said? He said that if anyone claims to be without sin, then he's actually deceived himself and the truth is not in him. In other words, a true Christian will know that they are in fact a sinner and they will confess their sin. Well, if that's true, then it can't be said that the true Christian will always obey God 100% perfectly, 100% of the time. Now, I don't, I don't think that that's what John is saying here. I don't think he's saying that you have to be sinless before you can call yourself a true Christian. But, but I do think that we need to feel the weight of what he is saying. He is saying that you can't call yourself a Christian and then blatantly refuse to obey God's commands. You know, you can't be the sort of person that says, yes, 
I know what God commands, but you know what? I know better. I know better than God. And so I'm going to choose to live my way. You can't be that person. You can't be the sort of person that says, yes, I know what God commands, but you know what? God's commands, they're unreasonable. Unreasonable. You can't keep that command. And so I will go on doing whatever I want. You can't be the sort of person that says, yes, I know what God, God commands, but you know what? If you work hard enough at twisting these words here in the Bible, well, you can make them say anything you want. And so I'll go on living any way that I want. You can't be the sort of person that says, yes, I know what God commands, but surely God wants my happiness more than he wants my obedience. No, you can't go on like that. You can't be the sort of person that says, yes, I know what God commands, but you know what? I don't care. You can't go on living in any of these ways and call yourself a Christian. There's no love for God in these things. In fact, it's the opposite. And to willfully harden your heart and settle for sin in your life in that way and to then call yourself a Christian, well, that is a lie. You don't know God at all. I remember a few years back hearing Don Carson speak on this particular passage and uh, he gave the example of a colleague of his who was actually a well-known Christian speaker. And that particular fellow, uh, sadly, he... He uh, left his wife and kids uh, to start up an inappropriate relationship with somebody else. And Carson spoke of how he would go and meet with this man and how he would plead with him as a Christian brother, uh, plead with him to, to, to obey God, to stop sinning, to repent. Unfortunately, this man refused to listen, saying that what he was doing was actually not all that wrong. God understood. Well, the time came after many months of pleading with this man to repent when Don Carson came to the realisation that he could no longer plead with this man as a, as a Christian brother. That the time had come for him to view him as, as a pagan unbeliever. Why? Because over time it had become apparent that this man, though he claimed to know God, did not know God at all. His blatant refusal to obey God revealed the truth that there was actually no relationship with God at all. And so, friend, I have to take this opportunity to now ask you, have you settled for some sin in your life? Is there an area in your life where, where you have hardened your heart and now willfully, blatantly choose disobedience over obedience. If so, then, friend, hear the word of the Lord. The man who says, I know God, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Brother, sister, you need to stop that sin. 
because genuine relationship with God means obeying his commands. Now, I'm not saying that obeying God will always be easy. I'm not saying that it won't actually be a real fight for you to stop that sin. It's just, it's just that when there's no fight at all, well, that's the real worry. And I also recognise that sometimes we need help from others to stop a certain sin. And if you are a person who has a particular sin in your life and you've tried time and time again to, to stop it, you just can't. Well, can I encourage you to get some help? Speak to Jeff. Speak to myself. Contact the Presbyterian Counselling Service. You'll find their number in the white pages. Friend, we will not judge you. Okay, we have enough troubles of our own. But that's the point. You see, maybe we can help each other uh, to, to once again, you know, think about what it is that God has done for us in his son, Jesus, and, and to rekindle again that love that we have for him and then to allow that to change us to be people of obedience. But you have to stop sinning. Then, in his letter, John goes on to give us one particular example. He gives us one particular command to think about. He mentions an old command that is also a, a new command. And it will become apparent that the command that he's talking about is actually the command to love one another. But how can that command be both old and new at the same time? Well, it was, of course... Uh, uh, Jesus, who said, uh, a new command I give you, that you love one another. You've heard that? You know, Jesus said that if you are my disciple, then you need to love one another, even as I have loved you. That was a new command from the lips of Jesus. But from the perspective of the people to whom now uh, John is writing, this was actually an old command. They've known it for a long time now. They've known it since they first became Christians. So you see how there is, this is in a sense is both an old and a new command. And John says that as Christians live out this command to love one another, what they're doing in effect is causing God's light to shine in the world. You see, if God is the source of light and we are in fellowship with him, then as we obey his commands and love one another, we cause his light to shine in this dark world. It causes the darkness to pass away. Now read with me from verse 7. Verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So you see the specific command of God here is that Christians are to love one another. And so you can't call yourself a Christian and then hate your brother. You can't claim to be in the light and hate other Christians. No, it, it's, when you, it's when you love your fellow Christians. That's when you are seen to be walking in the light. 
That's the evidence that you expect to see from people who are in fellowship with God. That's when you're seeing clearly. But if you hate your brother and you refuse to obey God's command to love one another, well, that's when you're actually walking in the darkness. That's when you have been spiritually blinded. Read with me from verse 9. Verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. See, true Christians will love one another. And so, friend, let me ask you, are you doing that? Are you doing that? Are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are you perhaps harbouring hate in your heart? Let me get more specific. These people here tonight, these people that are sitting around you, are you loving them? Do you love them? Do you love all of them? Now, I know that we don't have any major public conflicts in this congregation, at least none that I'm aware of. But then again, with a, a church this size, full of sinners as it is, you know, I would be very, very surprised if there wasn't somebody here this evening with at least a degree of hatred towards somebody else here tonight. I mean, there are countless reasons why we could be harbouring hate in our hearts. You know, maybe there's somebody here tonight who has said something that has left you terribly, terribly offended. Maybe there's somebody here tonight who has let you down, disappointed you in a very significant way. Maybe there's somebody here tonight who has been insensitive towards you in some way or another. Maybe there's somebody here who has failed to care for you in your time of need. So many reasons. And now, now when you think of that person, well, you are filled with bitterness and resentment. You hate them. You might not have used that particular word to describe what's going on, but that's the truth. You hate them. Friend, hear again what Jesus says. A new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. See, now we are to walk as Jesus walked, which means now we are to love as he loved. How did he love? Well, let's think about that for a moment, shall we? Here is the man, Jesus, whose close friend, Peter, deserted him and denied him in his greatest hour of trial. How did Jesus respond? Well, he lovingly restored Peter as a disciple and as a friend. What else did he do? 
Well, this is the man, Jesus, who, who on the very night he was betrayed, took the, the feet of his betrayer, Judas Iscariot, and, and knowing full well what he was about to do, yet took the place of a loving servant and washed Judas' feet. This is the man, Jesus, who, as he hung on the cross, looked down at those people, the people who had spat on him and mocked him and put the nails through his hands. He looked down upon them and he lovingly prayed, Father, forgive them. And here is the man, Jesus, who took all of your offences and all of my offences and lovingly died for them on the cross. And now, friend, we are now called to walk as Jesus walked. Now we are commanded to love as he loved. And we're told that anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. And so, friend, I have to ask you, is there someone here tonight for whom you have hate in your heart? Maybe somebody sitting on the other side of the room, maybe somebody sitting beside you, maybe even your spouse. If so, friend, then you have to do something about that. You can't go on sinning in that way. You can't claim to have fellowship with God and then blatantly, willfully go on disobeying his commands. And that includes his command to love one another. You have to remember that the relationship that we have with one another actually affects our relationship with God. That's a lesson that the church in Corinth found out the hard way. Do you remember their story? We heard their story read for us in the first Bible reading tonight. You may remember that the people there in the church in Corinth were, were claiming to be Christians. They, they were claiming to know God, but at the same time, they were failing to love one another. Oh, there were divisions in the church, there were factions in the church, and we're told that when it came time for them to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that some of them were just turning up early and, and eating all the food before other people even had a chance to, 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 to come and join in with them. Of course, in taking the Lord's Supper, what they were doing was claiming to be Christians. They were claiming to know God. But God saw the hate in their hearts, and so he judged them. Many of them got sick. Some of them even died. And in that passage there in 1 Corinthians, we, we see the, peop the warning that is given to the people there. It's a warning that you're probably very familiar with. I'm going to read it for you again. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, that is, died. But if we judged ourselves, 
we would not come under judgment. Do you see? Do you see how the relationship that we have with one another actually affects our relationship with God? It's interesting, isn't it, that more often than not, when we hear those verses quoted, when we hear that warning quoted uh, before we uh, have the Lord's Supper, it's usually in order to warn non-Christians not to join in. And I think that's a, a perfectly valid use. But actually, from context, I think that that warning is primarily to people who claim to be Christians, but who are failing to love one another. And so now, friend, as we move into the Lord's Supper here tonight, I call upon you to judge yourself, to judge yourself and to ask if you are obeying God's command to love these people around you. If there is someone here tonight that you hate, if there's someone here tonight towards whom you have been unloving, then you need to repent. You need to stop sinning. And you need to determine in your heart now, before we have the Lord's Supper, you need to to determine now that you will no longer harbour bitterness or hatred towards that person. And you need to determine now that if there is something that you need to do to restore fellowship with that person, that you will do so immediately after this service. If you're not willing to do that, then friend, as the bread and the juice are passed to you, can I encourage you to just let them pass you by? Because you wouldn't want to claim that everything is okay between you and God, if in fact it is not. But I now invite those that will be helping to serve the Lord's Supper to come forward, please. For those of you here tonight who will be taking the Lord's Supper as uh, the bread and the juice are passed to you, can I encourage you just to hold on to them uh, so that we can eat and drink together, just as a sign that we're not only in right relationship with God, but that we're also in right relationship with one another. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this Lord's Supper now, We acknowledge before you our sin and our failure to obey your commands and our failure to love you and our failure to love each other. And Father, we say sorry. We repent of our sins. We turn our back on them and renounce them. And we pray that with your help, You would help us to live lives that are appropriate for those who are in relationship with you. Lord God, we thank you that you do not judge us as our sins deserve. We thank you that through the blood of Jesus we are purified from all sin. That he is our atoning sacrifice and the one who now speaks to you in our defence. Father, as we eat and drink the bread and juice now, We do as your son Jesus commanded. We recall before you his suffering, his death and his resurrection. We acknowledge his absolute dominion and we look for the coming of his kingdom. Amen.